1: Rise If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies Or deep
2: Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st Century Legalized Slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parfus with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Laya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discussed recent news on legalized 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it today is the june 28th 2017 broadcast of new abolitionist radio we are seven weeks away from the millions for prisoners human rights march of washington dc august 19th it's push time on this day in history 1839 joseph kinke originally shombe the son of amende king along with several other africans is kidnapped and sold into slavery in cuba uh Kinkey and his companions will later carry out the most the famous successful revolt on the slave ship Amistad. Also on this day in 1964, the Organization for Afro-American Unity was founded in New York by Malcolm X. Our guest today will be Peter Von Gotcher of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Peter is a member and organizer of the International Workers Organizing Committee, or IWOC. In the past few weeks, he has been the subject of a brutal assault, and he could use our help. Our abolitionists in profile will be provided by Scotty Reed. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is LaDora Watkins, who was released from prison this month after serving 42 years for a crime he did not commit. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will be remembering the Amistad Slave Rebellion of 1839. Of course, we'll cover as many recent articles of news in regards to the abolitionist movement as time will allow. Be sure that you call in and join the conversation. If you like to do so, the number is 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at Uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty?
1: Hey,
2: what's going on, Max? How are you today? I- I'm good, man. You sound a little uh distant me. Maybe it's me. I'm not sure.
0: Okay, but you can hear me?
2: Yes, sir. I can hear you. I can hear you.
0: Okay, good. Pretty excited,
2: man. We got seven weeks ahead of us before the march. Uh, I've got a full schedule of events coming up where, you know, I'll be out there talking about it and, and doing other things in regards to the abolitionist movement. And I've got an invitation for you, Scotty. Oh, really? Yes, sir. I was asked to pass this invitation on. Uh, as you know, last year I participated in Chronic, which is the uh Carolina's human rights organizing committee. Uh and this year they want to talk about uh media and particularly they would ask if I would ask you if you'd be willing to participate this coming September in the uh South Carolina Chronic event.
0: Okay, I will have to get the details of that event, the dates and times before I can, can commit to anything.
2: Okay, I will get those to you ASAP. I just want to be, uh, I I had to be the messenger in order to uh, ask you here on air.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know my situation, Max. It's hard for me to really do a lot of traveling, being that I'm tied to this station, and not a whole lot of people on the station actually know how to engineer a radio program, so I am pretty much have to be there for everybody.
2: Well I think I'm pretty sure it's going to be in North Carolina again this year so it'll be hop skip and jump from you and if we get the dates in order and you're able to go uh travel and I will come and grab you up again and bring you down. All so I right. I'll, I'll forward
0: that to you as soon as I get it. Okay. How has your week been, brother? Uh pretty much same old same old, nothing spectacular has happened. Um, I did get a letter from my best friend from high school who's been 20 years a slave on um, a North Carolina prison plantation. And he was telling me that he was reading Dr. Joyce DeGruy's book about post-traumatic slave uh, syndrome. And, uh-huh. you know, a lot of these smart, smart people, they be talking about slavery in past tense so much, man. And it's just aggravating to me at times. Not, you know, not that I'm saying anything negative about them, except for, you know, they are not paying attention to what the 13th amendment said. I don't care what Ken Burns said. I don't care what Steven Spielberg said in his movie. I don't care what your history teacher told you in high school. They lied to you if they told you slavery was abolished in this country. And so I um, wrote up a... um You know, just a little quick letter to him telling him he needs to consider the fact. And he is an abolitionist. He does know about the 13th Amendment. But I guess, you know, he's just reading his book and it just doesn't occur to him that in order for us to be in a post period, that means it has to be over. So like I told him, the the term post-traumatic slave Uh, Disorder or post-traumatic slavery syndrome wouldn't apply to you until you get out of prison slavery, brother, because you're still experiencing that trauma every day. So it doesn't apply. You know, you you being stressed out, and if you get out, when you get out of slavery, your memories of slavery will not be genetic memory from ancestors from two or three generations ago. You know, passing on their genetic memories. No, your memories will be faced uh, fresh in your mind because you experienced them. So, you know, just, just that happened. And, you know, it, it, it just, again, we have to use the correct language. We have to stop talking about something in past tense that's ongoing right now. It can't be no post slavery trauma when we're still going through that trauma every day. So, that's, that's about the only thing, you know, out of the ordinary that happened. You know, I I
2: feel where you're coming from as a student of DeGry's work, uh, Dr. DeGry's work. I love how she explains cognitive dissonance. I mean, she's right on point with that, even to the point where she talks about how it's represented right there at the Statue of Liberty and uh, what's going on there in the representations. But at the same time, Like you, I expect so much more from people with all of these degrees. Like, how can you overlook the 13th Amendment and keep telling people more lies, reinforcing more lies about slavery being abolished when all you got to do is read those 47 words and think about it? That's all you got to do. But apparently, that seems to be uh, some kind of mental block. And one other thing, Scotty, I did get the information. was sent to me in regards to the chronic event and it's in September 15th through 17th I, I, I believe and it'll be in Greenville, South Carolina yes uh, that the date is uh, September I'm, I'm looking at the video that they sent me here and yeah, the, I
0: believe it's 15th. Got to scroll through it a little bit here. Yeah, we'll just look so at I, that later, Max. I'll, I'll take a look at it. Okay, brother. Okay. Well, that's cool, man. I got a little bit of uh, state hopping
2: going on ahead of me, too. I'll be in Ohio on the 26th through the 30th out there doing a panel discussion on the 13th Amendment and film the 13th. Uh, and also, I've been Invited to be a member of the South Carolina Revolutionary Party, which is a movement school For revolutionary actions And uh, they're having an event coming up July 22nd where I'll be talking About abolition and uh, Slavery in the uh, Modern day United States of America and Abroad I'll put all of that on New Abolitionist Radio If anybody's following our work and want to see us In person, you can always come by And check us out at these events Um Got a friend coming on today, Scotty, Peter Von Gotcher. Uh, he's been a big supporter and an abolitionist comrade for quite a while now. I believe we met through IWOC, the uh, International, uh, uh, the Incarcerated Workers of the World Organizing Committee. And uh, he's out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And for those that don't know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, has a very deep history of racism and of brutality. And apparently, our friend Peter has been the subject of some brutality out there just recently I'm not familiar with this story but I know he's in need of help right now and uh, figured we have a conversation with him today about the general subject as well as about what we can do to help him out
0: yeah so um, yeah if you, anytime you want to get started I believe he's on the line now do you want to go ahead and get started
2: uh, unless there was anything else you want to add for the week that has passed, uh, sure, we can.
0: Yeah, I, I can't think of anything, man. I, I, I really can't except for um, just trying to make sure that as much as possible, I remind people about the upcoming march in on August the 19th in Washington, D.C. at Lafayette Park. Here's a quick thought before we bring Peter on. I know the march and rally was originally scheduled for uh, the Washington Mall and perhaps some of the speaking area might have been in front of Abraham Lincoln's uh, memorial (laughs) statue, right? And so when I heard that it had been moved to Lafayette Park across the White House, I was kind of like glad because just having the specter of that hypocrite, all right, the man most responsible for the 13th Amendment, who who and I'm not saying he wasn't an abolitionist. I'm not saying that he did not think slavery was wrong. Okay, but his racism is well documented. And the 13th Amendment speaks for itself, as well as his le- letters to uh, what would later become a Confederate congressman. And so I, you know, a lot of that again speaks to all of these things that supporting this myth in this lie, And he's widely credited with abolishing slavery, signing that into law and everybody washed their hands of the institution. Oh, we finished the job and the job is far from being finished. And I know he knew being that he was an attorney, he knew the impact that that loophole was going to have, but it was more important As he stated, oftentimes before the Civil War and during the Civil War, his aim was to keep the Union together. And in order for him to bring these Confederates back in, if that means he had to make a concession to them to allow them to practice a new form of slavery, then that's what he did. I mean, it's not Scotty saying this. This is what the records say. So I was glad that it was being moved from the Washington Mall to Lafayette Park. That's all I got, Max.
2: You're right, man. And one of the things that you you just mentioned, uh, there was an addition to that that I like to add on to, is that we didn't even set up guards to protect it from coming back. Like there was nobody who said, you know, you better watch out because if you don't kill this thing completely and utterly, it is such an all-encompassing demon that it'll grow right back. It'll come right back at the first opportunity. So when it did come back, nobody was there. You know, minding the floor It was nobody paying attention And for 150 years We lived through more slavery And human trafficking Until uh, somewhere in the uh, Early 2010s And then things started to change And people started to wake up And mass again So this time, let's make sure We leave some guards behind With that being said I'd like to introduce our audience To our brother here Peter Von Gotcher out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, brother. Hey, how are you doing? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you. How you doing, brother? Everything good? Welcome as can
3: be yeah, considered? Yeah. I'm I'm uh yeah, I'm I'm recovering uh well and I'm in a safe space. So yeah, I'm doing pretty all right.
2: Good, good. I know you was having some problems uh with uh housing too, as well. Uh how are you making out in that aspect?
3: Well, that's still a struggle, but uh, you know it's one of those things where I have to make a choice between medical issues and getting those addressed, <laughs> and uh, it' housing. So it's been it's been a rough a rough road, but uh, I seem to be making progress. I, I have employment now, um, so when I lost uh, because of the ankle injury. I wasn't able to work as a remodeling uh, remodeling houses as I was. No, I'm uh, I'm working as a clerk at a front desk at like a third shift. So, uh, so I do have income, uh, and I, I am, uh, I, you know, housing's always kind of been a struggle for me. Uh, a lot of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. We get really hard for certain situations. Uh, being somebody who's been in and out of incarceration since I was 12 years old, uh, it's been a, a tremendous. Effort to come to the realization that I do need mental health help after, you know, almost a decade of kind of kinda constant uh, repetitive patterns in my life. So,
2: yeah. Mental health help is something that uh, should, along with health care, be a right because so many of us, one way or another, are dealing with these huge traumas, not just that only affect us but being right in the middle of all the trauma happening around you as well. And if unless you're blind and deaf and unable to think, you can't help but have some empathy, and that affects you in some major way. Would you uh, be... Are you interested in sharing the story of how you got assaulted, or is that something that you'd rather keep to yourself?
3: Uh, no, I can, I can share the story. Uh, uh, just regular night... Um, of late, I didn't have to work in the morning, so I thought I'd grab myself a couple, couple beers, and, uh, was at a bar I normally go to, uh, two individuals that I will not name because, uh, I don't, I don't file police charges, and it wasn't like the police were trying to get charges on them anyway. Um, came up to me, asked me for a light, uh, gave them a light, and then one struck me from the side, and the other one, choked me, and uh, another guy jumped in, and then before I know it, you know, PTSD kicks in, so I'm fighting every which direction. Uh, my teeth got kicked in. Uh, I, I fractured my ankle trying to get my uh, stuff back that they took from me. Uh, these guys initiated the conversation with me by by going, in words, lives matter, right? You're, you're the guy that likes in words, lives matter. Yeah. And so, uh, you know... I corrected him on that, but see, I've known these guys around. I've had issues with before. I was alone; uh, they took advantage, you know. And now I'm paying the paying the price for it. So this the hospital was... That's the hospital, the police didn't even bother to you know file any kind of uh, reports or anything like that. They didn't bother even to look in the the room or nothing.
2: So so based on the initial. Uh... Verbiage that was uh, aimed at You this attack is based on Your work uh with The incarcerated and Organizing the union And also in support of Black lives matter and the Abolitionist movement is that Basically what we're saying
3: uh, I wouldn't go that far Uh you know No one here really gets that deep into It right uh um, my work With um the Abolitionist movement um Makes me kind of an automatic, you know, if, you know, when police brutality is happening, it it, it all fits together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Police murders, uh, police mass arrest, all that, it all works into the prison system, right? It all works into the, the criminal, criminal industrial complex they got working out here. So, you know, whenever injustices like that do get involved, I do go out and I do, uh, protest and march with those groups, and I do go to their meetings sometimes, and I can. Um, so working with IWalk has mainly been doing a lot of traveling and speaking and trying to organize groups and get people interested and uh, working with prisoners, you know, going on strike and that are stepping up to fight back on the inside. Here in Tulsa, the racism is so deep and so up that anything past that goes maybe an inch deep into it. Oklahoma has a a long history of lynchings and murders, like just as bad as anybody else, not worse. Uh, we have a we have a whole history that you wouldn't know about, where black uh, towns were established throughout the whole state. Those towns are all but gone. Uh, so Oklahoma's is a, a pretty racist place. Tulsa is a super racist place. They have the biggest massacre to cover up. <laughs> So it's all pretty heavy, man. I mean people that call themselves anti racist have very racist views in this town. Uh so it's it's hard to it's hard to organize out here in Oklahoma without incurring some sort of backlash. And the more militant you are, the more backlash you will incur. Wow.
2: Yeah, they just I understand. <clears throat> Certainly understand. It's all connected and any time you're talking against any of that. It's seen as a threat to the establishment and particular to the police who uh, are now closing up ranks and fighting uh, back against us in ways that are just mind-boggling when they should be really con- reconsidering their positions. But uh, what what, co- what can we do to help you, uh, Peter? I mean, uh, is there that we can do? Well,
3: I... I want to first say that the help and support I've received from, from the abolitionist community uh, as a whole has been pretty impressive. And, uh, in the past, I was making like, you know, 50 bucks. <laughs> and uh, and I've gotten a lot of support nationally uh, and even from from international uh, sources uh, that are involved in, you know, all the way to Poland, to Bulgaria, to Germany, and the U.K., Uh in Mexico. Wow. Uh, there's people, there's prisoners fighting all across the world, you know, and uh, so I, I, always, uh, support them, so they, they really stepped up and supported me. Uh, right now as far as my being active, uh, as active as I was, probably not for a little bit, but we are developing things here in Oklahoma locally so I don't have to travel and I can focus on building stuff up here because there are 70,000 prisoners in Oklahoma In a state of 4 million people Wow 70,000 Good God
2: And Oklahoma is not as big as South Carolina and they got more prisoners
3: Oh it's small Like (laughs) You know like we can Fit the population Into one of these Texas cities
2: And still with 70,000 Prisoners and this from the place That had uh, the Tulsa Oklahoma riots (laughs) Oh the massacre yes Yes. Well, yeah, forgive me for using the word riots. Right, the massacre because it wasn't a riot; <laughs> it was a damn massacre. It was the only time in U.S. history that we know of that actually airplanes were bombing U.S. cities, and this coming from the white supremacists in the Tulsa, Oklahoma community. You know,
3: they give credit to Gertica for the first uh, first aerial bombing. Uh, human history, but that was actually Tulsa, Oklahoma, when they firebombed, not from military planes, but from capitalist planes, Mm -hmm. from oil bearings. Uh, It's, you know, the numbers aren't even, they don't even know the numbers anymore. Um, One side says 25,000, another side says 30.
2: If it was one, it'd be more than enough to really make a change. But we're talking twenty-five to 30,000 entire industries and businesses. I mean, uh, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street had everything you can imagine that we dream of having today in our own community. They had their own bus lines, their own airport, <laughs> their own schools, uh, Black-owned businesses. At one point, they even had their own currency and banks. And it was really what we were all aspiring to achieve. And all it took was just some crazy-ass white folks <laughs> white supremacists <laughs> to decide it that it would woman. all burn down. Yep, one white woman, that's what it was. Man. <laughs> it
3: took one white woman, uh, and they took it out. Um the I just want to point out that a lot of people don't know a lot of that history and it's very interesting, uh, the history of Black Wall Street, not just the destruction of it and the continued destruction of Greenwood as it is, uh, into like a baseball park and a white owned businesses and, and yoga studios and stuff. Uh, that history is a history of 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 real white folks work down there. Uh, white folks worked for black folks, and it was over it was over economic jealousy. Hmm. The White part of town wasn't progressing as well as the black part of town, and they couldn't handle it. There was a group that defended the area called the African Blood Brotherhood. If you ever get a chance to do any uh, research on them, it's pretty interesting. Wow. But, no, it's the it's the history. I got to go to Durham and uh, talk to some local folks in Durham, North Carolina about the uh the race massacre and the uh, attack on Green on the attack on Blackwall Street in Durham. Which was pretty interesting.
2: Mm. Scotty, would you like to do you have any questions you'd like to ask, Brother Peter?
0: Oh no, Max, I don't.
2: All right. Um well, tell me a little bit about your work in IWOC
0: um, and
2: the achievements that you've managed to make collectively as as an organization these past few years, which I would call nothing less than stupendous. I mean, you've organized prison workers, uh, got them to be members of a union, uh, helped in the organization, or the organizing of a prison labor work strike that literally had tens of thousands of people participating in as many as 24 different states. And, and now uh, you're also in support of and uh, part of the upcoming Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington. So if, if you want to share a little bit of the story of IWALK and your participation in it, I'm sure our. Listeners will be interested in hearing it And if you have any questions and you're listening in Please feel free to just press star-star To unmute yourself And you can ask question
3: or make a comment Well, uh, my, my involvement with iWalk uh, Started probably about two years ago uh, it was with uh, uh, I was a member of a union Called the IWW Which is a, a union for all workers been around for, for years, started by uh, Lucy Parsons, uh, co-founded it, and uh, it's it's been a revolutionary union, and probably the last surviving revolutionary union uh, from the 1920s in the United States, and uh, has even expanded to other countries like the UK, where it has a strong presence there too. And uh UK has also been organizing its own chapters of IWALK, so the movement has spread to the uh, United Kingdom and the prisons in, and, uh, in England. And, uh, so it's, it's been a, it's been quite a journey, uh, watching this blow up from from state to state. Uh, we were inspired mostly by FAM. FAM was FAM, uh...
2: The Free Alabama uh, Movement.
3: That's right. Uh, was, was a major part of that. Um, and we got permission from the union to get prisoners unionized if they're, uh, if they're in prison, they have a right to be a member of the UNI without paying dues. And that's still, even though they, uh, they don't pay dues and they're in the prison system, they're still entitled to the benefits of uh, an injury to one worker, an injury to all workers. And uh, the IWW has always had a model of fighting wage slavery. And uh, we see this as a great, great injustice to, uh, to workers, to a giant workforce in America, an unorganized workforce is almost 2.3 million people. I think that number's grown since I've heard it last. Uh, so the idea was to get those prisoners organized and start using their labor as their weapon. Uh, who runs the prisons? The prisoners do. Uh, is has is, uh, got a lot of this ex-prisoner leadership, which I respect and appreciate as an ex-prisoner. Uh, I was worded that you know, it's like, oh man, a bunch of old hippie activists are gonna start working prisoners. Like they're gonna get them killed. <laughs> so, uh, so I, so I was convinced by another fellow worker who was also a prisoner who had kind of helped found the thing. Um, and she, she convinced me to join up, and I've been just kind of running with it ever since. Uh, I don't mind going without a job for a while or struggling, uh, as long as we're out there organizing for the prisoners and getting the intention and uh, support they need, so that way when they step up, we can do our part and step up on the outside. I've gotten to sit down with people from George Jackson University to all across the country, uh, to trade labor unions. Um, you know, I got to sit there in, in front of 100 or so uh, union members, grassroots union members, and tell them that when the prisoners step up, don't scab out on them, you know, and uh, and and letting them know that whenever the prisoners stop working, you should probably stop working with them. It's important that the prisoners, the labor movement sees these prisoners as something that is taking their job, that is destroying their, their union through insourcing these the slave jobs to these prisoners. And, uh, I think there was something I saw on uh, on the internet that uh convict leasing for slavery you know slaves were an investment where the convicts just get another one, and uh, uh you know convincing people that it's just that easy anymore in the United States once you're in prison, you're locked in, you're a part of it some way or another and so uh getting those, getting unions, getting all the people to get behind these prisoners. So that way they can win, you know, give them the best chance of, of fighting back. And we see this as a path to uh, abolition.
2: You know, as a student of fractal geometry and chaos theory, I love how you presented that because we witness all of that here from New Abolitionist Radio, just as the Free Alabama Movement inspired IWAC, but they also uh, were an inspiration to us. And we have been in communication with them over the years and helped them To better understand the 13th amendment Which they took under uh, You know advisement and began to really Focus on it so to watch all of These different parts come together Inspiring each other To do something is a beautiful Thing and I suspect that it's Going to grow much larger Than it is now after the August 19th event and God forbid we actually have uh, Disclosure hearings Where congress will uh, You know talk about and investigate the 13th Amendment and its effects that it has had on this nation, I think the entire world will be up in arms at that point. So yeah, it's definitely a beautiful thing to see. Um, is there anything else you would like to add this evening, um, Peter, to uh, the conversation, uh, or you want to point
3: out? No. Um, you know, we just had, IWAC just had our last uh, conference, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of Things that we've struggled with as an organization, but you know, uh, I'm very proud to be a part of the union and a part of an organization that's led by ex-prisoners and prisoners on the inside, mm. who uh, yeah. that can that can still continue to keep this fight going because this is a protracted battle, and uh, it's 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 very much you know important to keep fighting no matter yes. what.
2: Yes, sir. It is in certainly important to get, keep fighting because for the first time in a very long time, we have an end in sight. There, there is an end game. We can see a light on the horizon other than right. just constant struggle. And that's uh, mainly because of the courageous acts of people like yourself and walk, and other organizations and groups that have decided that they will no longer remain silent and uh, they've gotten their priorities in order. And they want to knock this... System down that is uh, really controlled by white supremacy and is extremely oppressive not only to people of color but to everybody around them. So, thank you for your work and your dedication, Peter. And if you ever need us, brother, we're just phone call away, you know what I mean?
3: Right on, man. Solidarity, thank you, everything for all everybody for all their support and uh, keep up the good fight.
2: One more question. Brother. Oh, go ahead. If somebody wants to support iWalk in any way Whether it be through funding, donations, uh, assistance, volunteering, letter writing Is there uh, any way that they can contact and offer their services?
3: Yes, there's, uh, there's a new webpage And it's, uh, you can find it through the iww.org uh, webpage And we have all sorts of information um, We're the incarcerated workers of the world And uh, we're a part of the industrial workers of the world and so awesome Yes, we uh we have all kinds of benefits if anybody wants to join i mean there's all kinds of benefits for iowoc people you don't have to be a member of the union to get involved in iowoc work uh so you know solidarity god bless you know thank you guys for everything have a a good week and uh let's, let's win the strike
2: Indeed, brother. You go ahead and get some rest. I hear you yawning, and that third shift must be killing you while you're in pain as much as you are. So God bless. <laughs> <laughs> have a have a great night, and get you some rest, brother. All we'll right. Be safe, Peter. Peace. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Our brother Peter Von Gotcher out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, discussing walk the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, and the uh, organizational Uh, aspects of what's happening now as the collective in this fight against modern day slavery and human trafficking, whether it be behind bars or on the street.
0: Any comments, Scotty? Um, No, except I appreciate the work that they do on behalf of prisoners and it is much needed. These are workers. These people are working. For some of the major corporations in the world, and their labor is being taken advantage of. And, you know, of course, it's slavery. And I just don't understand why other unions have not gotten involved. Of course, we know the police union and the prison guard union support slavery. But what about these other unions? As they are being replaced, by machines like I will that was a subject today on Tanya Free and Friends about all of these retail stores laying off cashiers and in these um, grocery stores replacing cashiers and other workers. Um, Then I read an article in the Silicon Valley You know, there is a company that's working to replace all of the McDonald workers, you know, from the cashier to the person who makes the hamburgers or the biscuits in the morning or, or whatnot. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, what's going to happen to all those displaced workers? Yeah, you fighting for 15 now, but in 15 years, your job your industry may totally be done by robots and then where you think they got a place for you they got a place for you on their prison plantation so you would think more unions would recognize this and be involved but sad to say you know some of the bigger um, big name unions out there like the AF uh, what is it the auto workers unions they got several of those UAW and, and the other ones I don't see why they're not involved in in uh, opposing 21st century slavery because it threatens their jobs as well, and
2: it certainly does. Um, you know, this free labor that uh, the United States and other nations abroad have suddenly been tapping into in record numbers is nothing more than slavery and human trafficking. We're talking about people who are working for 11 cents an hour or. If they get anything at all Fighting forest fires Like literally risking their lives And in the past two years A couple of prisoners have died Fighting forest fires For a dollar or two dollars a day While there's Supervisors who are actual Forest fighters are probably making Closer to a hundred thousand dollars a year And uh, we talked about that before Where we were wondering What kind of burial would these people have who have given their lives to protect others Will they get a prisoner's burial Will the family just have to bury them Or will they be treated like the heroic firefighters that they were And uh, I'm, I'm curious how their funerals ended up And what happened to their families afterwards Was there any compensation given to their families Or are they just disposable oh, people cool. of course You know, a dollar a day Going out there and fight a fire And if you die, one dies, get another
0: I mean, you are asking some interesting questions because certain companies and even institutions, they have insurance just in case there's on on a job accident. So I wonder if these prisoners are being insured, which just reminds me of the article that came out this week about New York life insurance and their uh, policies that they had on enslaved Africans and what what have you so I, I tell you again I know that 1865 was not that long ago 150 something years was not that long ago that's two or three generations it's not ancient history and many of these same practices are with us today
2: my great aunt Grace Brown who raised me and I've said this before on air uh, she herself was raised by former slaves who escaped from the south to the north and took up residence in Patterson, New Jersey, and and raised her as their own. And they were former slaves. And uh, so for me, it's one generation ago, like literally, (laughs) like one generation ago. So it is certainly not that long ago. Well, we got a heck of a lot of stories today, Scotty. I I know we are not going to get through all of them, but I want to touch on a few of them. And I'm sure there's a few of them that uh, you have as well in your sights. One of the ones that I want to speak about was the cost of incarceration. You know, we keep hearing all of these numbers being sent out, like most people have heard it, uh, that we spend $80 billion a year on incarcerating people. As a matter of fact, Senator Sanders, during his campaign, made that one of his quote smacks, where he was regularly talking about how it was $80 billion a year that the United States... Spends on incarceration, and I'm here to tell you that that is not even close to the truth. That is lowballing, like lowballing has never been done before. It's uh, it, if you really knew the true price of incarceration, it would blow your mind. I have an article here from Think Progress, which says the true cost of mass incarceration is not eighty billion dollars; it exceeds one trillion dollars. One trillion dollars. And I'll, I'll read some of this article here. Um that's okay, Scotty? Yeah. All right. It says, In recent years, the bipartisan push for criminal justice reform has been fueled in large part by the astronomical price tag that comes with mass incarceration. Locking people up in federal, state, and local correctional facilities costs the government a whopping $80 billion, and taxpayers end up footing the bill. But a Washington University study released in July projects that the price tag touted by advocates of reform is a mere fraction of the actual cost of mass incarceration. When the financial toll on social welfare is taken into account, the working paper estimates the cost exceeds $1 trillion. And they have a link to a chart in there where you could see it as well. According to the researchers uh, Carrie Pettis Davis and Michael McLaughlin, the incarceration incarcerated population misses out on $70.5 billion in lost wages, while previously previous studies shows the former prisoners less likely to be hired and make significantly less money than their colleagues when they do secure jobs. Pettis-Davis and McLaughlin concluded that reduced wages add up to $230 billion in lost earnings. Families... Who have loved ones in prisons also shoulder the financial load. The amount of time it takes people to visit their family members instead of working results in one billion in lost revenue. Researchers found relative, uh, relatives spend an exorbitant amount of money traveling to and from correctional facilities and communicating with prisoners from afar. Consequently, families incur five billion of so-called criminal justice debt annual and pays $513 million a year. The correctional system also, house, also costs hundreds of billions of dollars in future crime. Prisons and jails reinforce behavior and structural strategies that are manipulative outside the prison environment, according to the paper. So people are, who are released back into society tend to fall back into criminal activity. That crimogenic nature of prison cost society $285 billion. Children who are also more likely to end up in the criminal justice system if the parent has done time generate another $131 billion in criminality costs. Now this is me speaking. I just want to add on to that the reason that children cost so much is because the cost of these private incarceration facilities for youth they can range from $45,000 a year on the low end in places like Florida up to $350,000 a year on the high end in New York State to incarcerate one teenager for one single year. So yes, of course, it's about $131 billion. Homelessness among former prisoners. Eviction rates due to lost income in the mental and physical health of prisoners and their family members also leads to billions in taxpayers' money and lost revenue. While the body of research about the cost of prisons and jails is robust and growing, Pettis Davis and McLaughlin are the the first researchers ever to give an estimate that accounts for the total societal cost of mass incarceration. We find that for every dollar in correctional costs, Incarceration generates an additional $10 in social costs, Pettis-Davis told the source. More than half of the costs are borne by families, children, and community members who have committed no crime. You can read the rest of that on New Abolitionist Radio and look at the links and follow up their charts and everything like that. But I can attest to so many of the different ways that families are exploited. You know, I had to stop visiting my son because they canceled uh, physical visits for my, myself and my wife to visit my son, and instead put into place these video conferencings, which cost as much as a dollar a minute for people to be able to talk to their family members. And that's just one of the ways where not only are they exploiting the citizen by incarcerating them, but also exploiting their families and their communities By exploiting them in order to see Or to be able to uh, deal with Or have any communications with Their incarcerated loved
0: ones and neighbors Scotty Earlier this week I was just Having some random thoughts about You know, the whole thing about uh, One trillion dollars in black spending power That a lot of people like to cite and I have to say Yvette Carnell on her Breaking Brown uh, channel does a great uh, job along with some others in showing how that's a myth. And I'm sitting here and I started wondering and it has me wondering again today since you mentioned this article about the true cost, how much of that $1 trillion in so-called spending power is being spent on services connected to modern day slavery and human trafficking you know like attorney fees like probation fees uh, um, phone calls like you just mentioned sending them some extra money so that they can purchase real food from the canteen as opposed to that roach infested rat doodoo infested uh, slop that many of these prisons are, are, are being served from some of those private contractors so I, w- I w- wonder if um anybody has ever looked at that and broke down that so-called one trillion dollars in spending power annually and how much of that is going into uh you know the uh modern day slavers pockets whatever industry you know they are in that's connected
2: it's a huge number scotty um we're talking we're not talking about no small industry we're talking about an industry that has collectively embedded itself into every aspect of our society as we know it today you can rarely or barely go out and buy anything or do anything or participate in anything that doesn't in some way shape or form connect itself to modern day slavery and human trafficking it's a, a huge industry uh, you know we used to say that it or I used to say, based on my own understanding, that it was worth a half a trillion dollars a year. I knew a long time ago that that eighty billion was just a distraction to make it seem much smaller than it was. It is far from eighty billion dollars, and that's for sure, especially when you start talking about the other industries that are involved who we don't take account into and yet profit off of this system. I mean the bail companies aren't even included in their in their Discussion there—that's not part of their their discussion. But the bail companies are worth billions upon billions of dollars. They are rolling in all of this money every single year, and they are so uh, onerous and so involved in the community that you can't help but see them whenever you go to communities in poverty. You'll see two, three, four, five bail bonds office lined up like you know—they're they're more of a franchise than McDonald's. You could have four or five of them on the same street. And I've seen them with my own eyes like that. And they have such access to the jails and prisons that you can see bail bombings rolling through the prison or jail corridors, passing out their cards in order for you to use their services. It's like, wow, you talk about taking soliciting to a whole new level. And those bail bombings and the bail companies are financed by international insurance companies, who are the ones making the overall profit on all of it. So just that as an example will show you how big this system really is. And uh, we're just talking about bail bonds. I haven't mentioned anything about tickets and fees and warrants and all these other aspects that are also included in those price tags. So it could easily be more than a trillion dollars a year.
0: And the reason I bring this up is because... It's a lot of things that are being said and not purposely to be um, misleading, okay? They're not on purpose trying to give us bad information or anything like that. It's that they have incorrect information, and if you're basing your your analysis or your theories or anything like that on incorrect information, then it's just going to be incorrect, and it's so many things that that you know we are not paying attention to, or we're leaving out of the equation, and trying to figure out solutions to the problems. And you can't leave any equation out of a problem and come up with the, the proper solution. So that's why I asked that question because people say that we pro- oh we got one trillion in black spending power, and if we just spend that one trillion with black businesses, then we could pull ourselves up buy bootstraps out of this and this is just simply incorrect again breaking brown channel they have done some great uh videos on on the fallacy of that kind of thinking um but again max just told you and we know who's locked up the most in private prison slave um i mean excuse me in modern day slavery in this country we know that and we're not trying to make other groups invisible but we know black people are the number one uh demographic for being targeted for slavery and being convicted and and put into slavery we know black people so i'm i imagine that's costing us way more than a trillion dollars annually and and people are not even taking those things into account when they say these things and It's also a global industry, Scotty. So we're only talking about the United States. That's why they're bringing you to Ghana. Because it's global. Yep. Uh, And that that right there, Max. That right there. When I hear people, well, all we got to do is just leave the USA and go to Africa and everything could be all right. We're going to have to work hard and all that. But at least we'll escape racism, white supremacy. Then you get over there in Africa and you find out the hell the DEA got offices in Africa and prosecuting the drug war the illegal drug war uh, in Africa and that you know if you want a job in Africa chances are you know the largest employer is going to be you working as a prison guard or overseer you know enslaving other Africans so again we have to we have to include every variable in the problem when we're trying to come up with these solutions, and ignoring any element is only going to lead to flawed, so-called solutions.
2: Indeed, brother. Um, let me give a shout out uh, real quick to Cali today, uh, Muirhead, um, and he, he, who made it possible for us to be able to go to Ghana now. So there's no question we're going to be able to make it there just the only thing stopping us might be stopping us is if we have any issues with our passports or anything like that but yeah shout out to uh the brothers who made it possible for us to be able to get out there you know um you mentioned how we can't escape by going to africa you know in africa right now they're very proud of the fact that across the entire continent the largest employer is a private prison company the largest employer private employer on the entire continent of Africa as a prison company so we have exported our version of slavery all the way back to Africa and beyond
0: Mm. well I guess we've time for a couple of stories Um, It's two stories I want to share Max one of them I don't see that you posted but I'm going to tie it to the other article that you posted Okay, first I'm going to share this one with you uh, from the ACLU. Police accidentally record themselves conspiring to fabricate criminal charges against a protester. And this was written by Jay Stanley of the ACLU and said the ACLU of Connecticut sued uh, state police in 2016 for fabricating retaliatory criminal charges against a protester, protesters at the troopers were recorded discussing how to trump up charges against him. In what seems like an unlikely stroke of cosmic karma, the recording came about at a camera belonging to the protester, Michael Picard, was illegally seized by a trooper who didn't know that it was recording and carried it back to his patrol car. This is why, I, I haven't said it in a while but I told people um, since uh, over the years on Black Talk Radio Network you need to put that in like your pre-programmed numbers um, number to a free conference line and it's called, so that you can record it online through your phone so in case if they seize the phone well they can't seize the recording because it's stored online and that anytime you're stopped you need to go ahead and dial that number and be recording And so that's what happened in this case. So it says, uh, uh, goes on to say, one of the troopers declared, let's give him something. Another suggested we can hit him with creating a public disturbance. Got to cover our ass, remarked the third. So ACLU affiliates around the country have done a lot of cases defending the right to record in public places. But this case is particularly striking. Uh, Speaking to ACLU of Connecticut Legal Director Dan Barrett, he told me how the incident came about. Our client is a guy who was very concerned with privacy and who protests DUI checkpoints around the Capital Region here in Hartford, Connecticut. He feels they're both unconstitutional and a waste of money. He has done public records investigations, for example, and recently found that for every two man hours, put into a checkpoint, it yields just one minor traffic citation, almost always for defective equipment. He was well known to the police, who also knew that he is a peaceful privacy and open carry gun rights activist. So Michael was out on September the 11th, 2015 in West Hartford. He shows up, has a big sign that says, Cops Ahead, Remain Silent, it's handwritten this is not threatening stuff. He stood on a small triangular traffic island. He was standing there for an hour uh, and a half without any problems. Then the state police officers who were working the check- checkpoint came over to Michael, and the first thing they do is slap the camera out of his hand so it hits the ground. He think it's broken. It was really brazen. There's another video showing that the first thing the state trooper does is walk up, and with his open hand slaps the camera down to the ground. He doesn't even say anything like, put that down or please lower your camera. He just slaps it to the ground. Then he interacts with Michael as if nothing happened, as if I'm just allowed to do that, and I don't even have to tell you why I just broke your camera. It's an amazing level of hostility. So um, let me see. it's a couple more uh, paragraphs here. The trooper search Michael, and theatrically announced that he has a gun which they knew he had and which he was carrying legally under Connecticut's open carry law so they take his gun and they go run his pistol permit as they're doing that Michael picks the camera up off the payment it's a nice SLR that can also record video he picks it up and tries to turn it on as one of the cops walks back over and that's where the video starts the cop announces that taking my picture is illegal Michael debates with him a little because he's very knowledgeable about the law and the first amendment and the end result is that the trooper snatches the camera walks away and puts it on top of the cruiser without realizing that it's working and it's recording video this is the point which the trooper's accidental self surveillance begins and so it's pretty long uh, article I'm not going to read the rest of it but I wanted to read that one to you first in case you didn't catch um, the BTR commentary for today because I haven't published it on BTR, but it uh, airs first on Tanya Free and Friends show. So if you didn't hear my BTR news commentary for today, it was on the fact that three additional police officers have been charged in the murder of Laquan McDonald, the um, high school graduate in Chicago, um who was shot down like a dog in the street by Jason Van Dyke a Chicago police officer and these three other officers all were not on the scene one of them was an investigator you know and now you know why people say oh the police investigated themselves and found they did nothing wrong all right so one of the investigators all collaborated it was three cops charged with conspiracy to cover it up Um, corruption in public office um, and a a number of other charges were handed down in this indictment that was obtained by the special prosecutor in the case. These aren't like rookie cops or any. These are cops with 20, 30 years on the force. In fact, they probably worked with John Burge when he was still running around the Chicago streets, former uh, Chicago police Commander who was torturing young black men into confessing to crimes they did not commit. They probably, you know, knew him personally. So I said, I was saying to myself, you know, this is just a, a, a very rare case where a special prosecutor came in and investigated and found that there was a conspiracy to cover up the murder of this young man. I bet you this happens far more than what they're willing to admit, but more than we realize. This happens all the time. These aren't isolated incidents. They make up crimes all the time, make up charges all the time. It's called stacking charges on you. The DA will be involved Mm -hmm. in that too. And they'll just outright lie on you and they will murder you And they will conspire together like the criminal organizations that they are to, you know, get away with murdering citizens, man. So, I mean, those two stories right there, you know, so I don't want to hear nothing from uh, Mr. Trump about people being unfair to police. We're not making up these stories. We're reporting news reports. This is coming straight out the news or from organizations who are involved in these cases these are coming from court transcripts these are coming from video of the incidents so ain't nobody got to make up nothing about these slave catchers all one has to do is pay attention max
2: yes sir you know we're about to kick our break before we get into break i just want to add on more to more that For those that have been listening now for years, you know that my son just recently got out of prison after almost 15 years. Uh, He starting with nothing. We're trying to get past this almost 80 percent recidivism rate. He just went to court today uh, for traffic violations that occurred when he was a minor before he was incarcerated. And my wife just walked in and told me that you know he contacted her and let her know that they dismissed all of the charges except. One, which results in a five hundred dollar fine. So, they they could have sent him right back to prison for something that you know had done before he went to prison. But instead, they just added more hardships onto him to a person who has no job and no income, and demanding that they he pay five hundred dollars. So, that's been the next step in this thing.
0: That's extortion.
2: It is extortion, man. It is extortion. It's this. Even when they don't consciously try to put you in prison, they're unconsciously part of a system that is designed to do exactly that, and they play their roles to the hilt. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We're going to take a couple of breaks, and we'll be right back after these messages.
0: providing new black media for the masses.
2: Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, If you're on the line and you'd like to chime in, make a question or comment, uh, please just press star star on your cell phone and that will unmute you and you can go ahead and make your question or comment we always love to hear from our listeners who uh, often have very insightful things to add to this conversation so uh, feel free to do that now if you are interested or so inclined all right well um scotty one of the things that i wanted to get on was an okie doke that is going on out in ohio um i'm trying to pull up the story now but apparently there is uh Two types of Oh here it is There's two types of articles going out And it's the same old Social media okie doke That they always try to pull on us To make it look like they're actually doing Something about incarceration And giving us false hope When all the while They know they have already planned On what to do In a news article that came from The Dispatch.com It says that a proposed sweeping Rewrite of Ohio's criminal laws includes a provision that would allow the state to release hundreds of low level nonviolent inmates when the prison population hits 47,000. The state prison population last week stood at 50,093, 3,093 above that threshold. The change is among hundreds recommended by the Ohio Criminal Justice Recodification Committee. Which on June 15th completed a two year task of rewriting the entire state criminal code. The result is a 4,017 page bill submitted to the General Assembly. The committee composed of judges, legislators, prosecutors, law enforcement officials, and others. I guess prisoners are the and others, but I doubt it. They don't never put their voices <laughs> into these conversations. But anyway, it was voted 18 to 2 to recommend the overhaul. Other changes include the return of a version of bad time for inmates who misbehave in prison, reduced add-on sentences for crimes, committed while in possession of a gun, expanded opportunities for offenders to obtain drug treatment in lieu of prison, and an increase in the theft amount that triggers a felony charge to $2,500. Now, I'm not going to read that whole article my purpose in, in just pointing it out was giving, that what they're doing is they're giving people hope. <clears throat> they're saying, look, we have an opportunity like California had. Our prisons are overflowing to the brim with bodies. And we know in this particular case, considering Ohio's uh, disparaging incarceration rates of black and white are filled with black and brown bodies. But at the same time, they never have any intention of letting any of those men or women go. They they just don't, and they know it, because that is way too much money. I can't quote the exact amount, but we did the math here on New Abolitionist Radio when they had to reduce, uh, re- release 4,400 prisoners, and it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year in income. They're not going to give that up. And here's the other article that I want to read to you, which came in. From my uh, Dayton news, my Dayton Daily News, and it tells you what their actual intentions already are. Columbus, Ohio's overcrowded and costly prisons have stimmied state officials for years, but Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections Director Gary Moore says he has a plan to keep 4,000 offenders out of state prison and it'll save money. When Moore began his corrections career in 74 as a teacher's aide, there were just 8,300 inmates in Ohio prisons. Now DRC employs 12,242 incarcerated, 50,552, and spends $1.67 billion a year. Moore, who has led DRC since January 2011, has pushed reform, but the changes so far have failed to move the numbers south. Now, Moore is advancing a plan embedded in Governor John Kasich's budget proposal that will pay counties to keep low-level nonviolent felons out of state prisons. The program, which would be voluntary, would pay counties $23 per day per inmate not sent to state prison. It costs DRC an average of $67.84 to incarcerate an inmate for a day. Counties would use the money for enhanced supervision, electronic monitoring, drug treatment, or other sanitations and remedies deemed appropriate by judges handling the criminal cases. What I'm going to try to do over my last budget here is to try to reform, try to make a big difference, and not just tinker, Moore said. So apparently, instead of actually just releasing innocent people who are in there for nonviolent drug-related or uh, debtors' uh, crimes, they're going to send them to another system, which allows uh, monitoring, incarceration in local jails, drug treatment, whatever it may be, in order to get more money into the state's coffers and to create a multitude of new jobs all based around the criminality of the Ohio citizens. Scotty?
0: Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, Max, other than, you know, what's been written already. But, I mean, this beast is a monster, man. I mean, that's kind of like, I'm saying the same thing, basically. But, yeah, it's just the tentacles, man, just permeate this society, man. It's like, do we just rip it out or do we need to take a, a... uh, surgeon's knife, you know, and, and make surgical incisions and, and what have you, but let me say this, Max, about the system. Um, this is one of those cases where I do say the system is broken. And didn't you mention once before that this is the only country that still operates a bail system
2: uh th- one of two uh, us and the Philippines are the only two nations on earth that allow a for profit bail system.
0: And I wonder why that is.
2: According to the other nations, they see it as immoral, unjust, unethical, and criminal of the highest order for you to be putting these uh, for-profit bails, uh, I I guess, put these on to the people of the United States and in uh, Philippines as well. So hunting people for pay is criminal.
0: And I mean, it also just flies in the face of the whole notion that you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, if I'm innocent, why I gotta be in jail? Why do I have to be in jail into my trial? I mean, in certain cases, if you have evidence of people who have been murdered then you just don't I mean who are murderers or rapists or committed some heinous crime if the evidence is that strong then you know just don't just don't take them I mean don't give them bail period but in these other cases where especially most of the cases where it's non-violent why should there even be a bail system for those type of crimes it's a well, tough we know go ahead Scotty I'm sorry No, I was just saying, it's a tough one, man I had to think more on it
2: Well, one of the things that we do know Is that this bail system is a violation Of the Eighth Amendment Which uh, guarantees us protection From uh, exorbitant prices Like this, exorbitant costs and, And such things as bails They don't take into account On a person's ability to pay them. They just put these numbers out there, which basically guarantees that you will stay in prison for as long as it's necessary for you to be there until you can get out. What I just told you about my son is an example. You just find a man a job who has no job and no income, $500. Where do you think he's going to get it from? Like, really, where do you think he's going to get it from? the same thing applies to the homeless population. When you start finding homeless population for things that they do on the outside, you're urinating in the street. That's a $250 fine. Well, I'm homeless. What do you think I'm going to get the money? So what happens is people unable to pay these bills sit and rot in these jails uh, for years and years and years. Khalif Browder spent three years in one, but we talked about a gentleman last week who spent 35 years in prison without ever receiving a trial and without being able to get out. One of the stories that we have today is where a brother has spent uh, a number of years in prison uh not knowing that he, or in jail, not knowing that he could have got out for $1 bail. Nobody ever told him that he had a $1 bail. Hey, Amen. Another story is,
0: yes. Yeah, and just again to to, t- to point out that this is a global uh system of slavery. I had read a week and a half ago about a man had been spent years in a prison in haiti in a in a jail i don't, i he he had not been convicted of a crime, and they put him in prison. It wasn't no jail it wasn't described as no jail He was trying to figure out every day why am I here? What crime did i commit what Where's my trial? They kept this man in in that prison for years, man. He finally escaped, and then they lock him up for escaping prison. Still ain't tell him where he was there for in the first place. And I know a person, an activist in Hawaii, I spoke to her a, a month or so ago. They can't locate her brother. He been missing in the system for eight years. He's probably dead, but, you know, I didn't want to say that to them. But, man, people just have no ideal unless it's affecting their families.
2: Yeah, and you're right to point out the Haiti circumstance. I believe that you're referring to the video that came out that was smuggled out about what's going on in the Haitian prisons, which we know have got some funding from the GEO group to manage those prisons immediately after the earthquake that occurred over there. And this video is heartbreaking. When you start seeing what they're doing, they're not, it's not even a matter of law enforcement in Haiti. It's just pick up bodies and put them in the cells and you collect money for it. There's no prosecutions. There's no charges going on. Like the gentleman that you mentioned who spoke in his own words in this video, how he was picked up for no charges, tossed in there, hasn't seen a lawyer, and has been inside for years inside of this prison, which is a crime against humanity if you just see what's occurring. It looks like a land-based slave ship, and that's exactly what it is. Meanwhile, they're using these uh, cruel and inhuman uh, methods in order to uh, create an economic boom where people are getting work and jobs to manage these prisons. It is a damn shame. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm not a religious person, but I am very uh, spiritual, and I can easily see that God is going to get your ass. (laughs) You are going to have to you're going to have to pay up for this at one point or another trust Scotty was there a story that you wanted to cover before our, our, our evening was out tonight uh, I think we have enough time for two more
0: uh, let me see what else what else do we do we have here The one that I I think I
2: did want to uh, cover before the evening was out was the New Jersey Assembly passed that bill where kids are to be taught to interact with police in schools. Yeah. But that was pretty screwed up.
0: You know what? I had some thoughts about that. I wouldn't be against it if they were telling these kids what their rights are and you have the right to remain silent and, you know, read them their Miranda rights and, and telling them that you have the right, according to the Supreme Court, to record public servants or, or police uh, slave catchers and while they're doing their duty and that you should record them. I mean, it goes both ways, man, but, like, this was discussed on Tanya Free and Friends today and I like what one of them said that This is nothing but propaganda. This is just a propaganda operation to propagandize these children. And then when they, hell, they can still get killed by cops as children. As many children have been killed over the years, but but will say, hey, we taught you how to respect us and you didn't do what we taught you in school. And so that's why you're dead. Or that's why you got beat up. Or, you know, just using that for an excuse. I wouldn't be against it if it was being conducted by the ACLU and not the police. You understand what I'm saying?
2: Uh, certainly, I understand what you're saying. Basically, what they want to do is raise up a generation of docile uh, children who become docile adults and do anything that the police tells them even when it violates their rights. Uh, I'll just read a little bit of the Assembly Bill A one one four, which passed in Assembly seventy six to zero. Like there was nobody that said, "Hey, something's wrong with this. I- I'm not really feeling that." There was nobody that did that. Apparently,
0: no Democrats. Man-
2: <laughs> well, in the voting process through the Assembly, it was seventy six to zero. So,
0: no Democrats.
2: Nothing. Nobody. Seventy six to zero. The mill. The bill mandates mandates that school districts start teaching kids how to talk to law enforcement officers starting in kindergarten, and will continue instruction all the way through grade 12 as part of a social studies curriculum. If it becomes law, the program will begin in the state schools starting next year. Uh, When the legislation was first introduced in the 2016 session, critics said it appeared to place the onus for police interactions largely on kids mandating only that children be taught the role and responsibility of law enforcement officials in providing for public safety and an individual's responsibility to comply with a directive from a law enforcement official. And I have to wonder Scotty, how would this have saved Tamir Rice's life? How would it have saved his life? It didn't save Forlando Castile. Jones's life.
0: It didn't You know s- and I don't see it. It didn't save Forlando Castile show him that video yeah show him that video of him talking nice to that officer and and then even after he gets gunned down how his how his girlfriend talked to that officer and none of that mattered (laughs) so man
2: it seems to me that as i said this is a, a step towards indoctrination further indoctrination and to create a society that does not question authority, even when authority is absolutely wrong.
0: Exactly. hmm
2: Well, that that was the one I wanted to go over. Anything from your end, Scotty?
0: Yeah, I do got a story um, about Core Civic, formerly known as Correction Corporation of America. I'm gonna have to start circulate. I'm gonna have to make a new meme as they got a couple. A new board members, but I had a couple of memes I had made showing you their faces, showing you their um um uh, other businesses that they might have owned and what have you um but yeah and but one name that always stands out on the list to me, Max, do I have to give you a clue as to who this person is?
2: Thurgood
0: Marshall Jr. Third, Good Marshall Jr. Damn shame! I tell you, Supreme—the the son of a of the first black Supreme Court justice, a civil rights icon—his son is involved in modern day slavery and human trafficking. All right, so yeah, the uh they just voted, of course civic did, and they elected um a new board and many other people are still on um the board that have been on there since the Bush administration. So uh that's something that people go it has all their names. Let me just give you a couple of names. The chairman of the board is Mark A. M. Keys. He's been on the board since 2014. He became chairman of the board in 2016. Uh you know him from until 2013 when he retired. He was the Commissioner of Finance and Administration for the State of Tennessee. Uh, He spent 33 years with the tire powerhouse Bridgestone Americas, where he served as CEO from 2004 until his retirement in 2010. Donna M. Alvarado on the board since 2003. She was once Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense at the U.S. Department of Defense. She also served as counsel for Immigration and Refugee Policy Subcommittee of the U.S. Senate Committee of the Judiciary and a staff member of the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on Narcotics Abuse and Control. All right, she also had begun her own international business consulting firm, Aguila International. Robert J. Dennis, he's been on the board since 2013. Uh, doesn't look like he held a government job, but he was chairman, president, and CEO at Genesco, a corporation of apparel companies that includes journeys, dockers, and leagues, among others, under his umbrella. I wonder how much prison slave labor they're using to sew them clothes. Uh, Damon. Henniger, Henniger, I believe is how you pronounce it. He's been on the board since 2009. He was named president and CEO in August of that year. Uh, He has held a government job, no, but he's had a long history with CCA, where he began as a correctional officer in 1992 at the Leavenworth Detention Center in Kansas. Over 20 years later, that same facility will become the subject of a really rough inspector general investigation, specifically in relation to its USMS contract. By 2000, he worked his way to vice president, business analysis, was appointed president and CEO, chief operating officer in July 2008, and again joining uh, Core Civic, formerly CCA, in 2009. Stacy uh, Hilton she's been on the board she's new 2016 She, um, you might know her from an Obama era investigation into whatever the hell the US marshals were up to In a previous life, she spent most of her professional life in the employ of the U.S. Marshals Service. She began with the U.S. Marshals Service in 1980, was appointed by Bush 43 to serve at the Federal Detention Trustee, uh, an office established in 2001 and charged with overseeing all federal detention operations. She became head of U.S. Marshals Service in 2011 via appointment by President Obama. When the office of the federal detention trustee came under the auspices of the marshal, she assumed control of the agency again. She resigned in 2015 and joined CCA board. We have uh, Ann uh, Marusi. She's been on the board since 2011. You may know her from her work at Dale Webb Corporation, where she served as president, according to her bio, after the company merged with Ploot Homes. It became the nation's largest home-building company. In a previous life, she was once the head of the Arizona State Retirement System, and I bet she was even then uh, directing some of those investments into prison slavery, and currently sits on the Arizona Board of Regents, which overlooks the state's university. As we mentioned, Thurgood Marshall Jr., Been on the board since 2002. His father, famed Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, a well-respected lawyer, in his own right, he served as the Director of Legislative Affairs to Vice President Al Gore and Cabinet Secretary to President Bill Clinton, a position which, according to his company biography, had him serving as liaison between the president and various executive agencies. He also sits on the board of directors of Genesco with Robert Dennis. we uh, got just a couple of more. Charles L. Overby, been on the board since 2001. He's from the newspaper business, you know, um, the media that likes to portray certain people as criminals and, and worthy of slavery. In a previous life, in 1983, the same year that CCA was setting up its first private detention center. Mr. Overby attached a lofty distinction to his editorship at the Jackson Clarion Ledger, a Pulitzer Prize winning. His long career as a reporter and management for Gannett eventually brought him to the CEO position at the Freedom Forum and Newsium. According to his company biography, once upon a time he also acted as press. Assistant to Senator John Stennis of Mississippi, then the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and as special assistant for administration of Tennessee Governor Lamar Alexander, who has been a senator from the from the state of Tennessee since 2003. I uh, think we got one more. Last but not least, John R. Pran, Pran Jr. He's been on the board since 2001. Um, He's had a string of corporate leadership positions uh, from his corporate biography. Pran served from 1993 to 2001 as president and CEO of Katie Industries, Incorporated, a publicly traded manufacturer and distributor of consumer electric corded products and maintenance cleaning products. From 1991 to 95, he was president and CEO of CRL, Incorporated, an equity and real estate development company. Yo, oh, no wonder they snatched them up, which held a 25% interest in Katie. A former partner with the accounting firm of Deloitte and Touche, Mr. Pran serves on the boards of several institutions, um, including the Student Leadership Institution and in Carton Cushing School, and is an advocate of education and youth issues. Wow. So, it has all their pictures and their biographies. I just read to you. If you see these people out in public on the street, tell them Scotty Reed said hello, and we coming for them. <laughs> tell them
2: Scotty Reed said hello, and give him a kiss from Max too. While you at it, you know uh it's a damn shame that the son of a civil rights icon such as Thurgood Marshall Jr. Would sit on the board of directors for one of the top two slave organizations in the entire world. And uh, I'm proud to say that we are part of the reason that Core Civic is no longer called CCA, because we have exposed them, along with the efforts of many others and with the help of Senator Sanders, as the criminal industry that they are. To the right. point where that they felt it was absolutely necessary for them to change their name and their image. And how much money does these CEOs make on slavery and human trafficking? Well, I'll give you the top two. Damon T. Heninger is the chief executive officer at CoreCivic. And he made $3 million in total compensation salary uh, of this total. 861,000 was salary, 86,000 was a bonus, uh 2.1 million was a stock bonus, and another eighty th- eighty thousand came from other types of co- of compensation. I found this on salary.com and his uh competitor, which is the Geo Group, is George Zoli. And if you see George Zoli out in Florida, tell him Max said hi. As a chairman of the board, CEO and founder at Geo Group Incorporated, George C. Zoli made $5 million in total compensation. Of this total, $1 million is salary. $2 million is a bonus. Wow, he made more in a bonus than he did in salary. And he also received $1.6 million in stock. And 312000 came from other types of compensation. Now, when I mention this $1.6 in stock or $1 million in stock, remember that went up 100%. So that's another $1.6 that he just made on um, slavery and human trafficking. And, and they, they give are, as you. Scotty pointed out, buying off and uh, bringing in insiders from the prison and government industry, who through their ties can get what they need
0: to get done done right and shout out to kanye west too because it wasn't long after he came out with that track new slaves where he's mentioned cca and <laughs> that they changed their name to core Civic. so he's one of those entertainers that you know, uh, uh, used his platform to point out that slavery was never abolished. Thank you, Conway, Kanye.
2: Yes, indeed. Kanye West, man. And you know, we're not getting any help from the, uh, any party on this. Not really. I mean, they are going wherever they feel that the best, uh, dollar bill is available for them. You know, we just got some news from our longtime listener, um, uh, and the brothers names I can't uh, all, I'm having a brain fart here. When I come back I'm gonna tell you what he said and it was Otis 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 uh Griffin gave us some information from the Democratic Party and where they're going with their efforts now. We're gonna take our break and when we come back I'll tell you about it.
0: Black Talk Media Project launched the digital radio platform, Black Talk Radio Network, the first such platform created to serve the black community specifically. Black Talk Radio Network has grown with a variety of radio hosts, digital radio stations, and podcasters. Web analytics say Black Talk Radio, the platform, has an online reach that ranks it among the top independent black media platforms in the world. All of this is possible because of financial contributions to the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. If you love the we do and the voices and perspectives we bring to you every day. Make a donation today to ensure that Black Talk Radio is here in the future. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium.
2: Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, I'm with that Scotty, what I just heard in the commercial break, and I'm proud to be a part of this. You know, just in the past week, we went from 12,000 followers to 13,000 followers on our New Abolitionist Radio page and just on Facebook alone, we've reached over sixty thousand people just this week. That's not counting the other media outlets. We're reaching hundreds
0: of thousands of people across. You the mean globe our other pages? Single week. You mean our other pages, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We man, we've already gone reached over a million people thus far. Probably closer to two million through all our media operations.
2: Amen to that man You know I was mentioning Otis uh, earlier And he's probably listening in now uh, But I want to thank him for pointing this out to us What the Democratic Party is doing right now It's an article that uh, came out from The Intercept And it, I'll read a quote out of it Or just a couple of uh, uh, of, of the things that it says It says after President uh, Donald Trump's upset election victory Democratic insiders who worked on Hillary Clinton's failed presidential bid weren't necessarily relegated to the sidelines. Many, in fact, are cashing in as lobbyists by working to advance Trump's agenda. Lobbying records show that some Democratic fundraisers who raised record amounts of campaign cash for Clinton are now retained by top telecom interests to help repeal the strong net neutrality protections established during the Obama administrations. Others are working on behalf of for-profit prisons on detention issues, while others still are paid to help corporate interests pushing alongside Trump to weaken financial regulations. At least one prominent Clinton backer is working for a health insurance company on a provision that was included in the House Republican bill to gut the Affordable Care Act. While Republican lobbyists are more in demand, liberal lobbyists are doing brisk business that has them reaching out to fellow Democrats to endorse, or at least tamp down, vocal opposition to Trump agenda items. They go wherever the money's at, these hoes ain't loyal, <laughs> I'm just saying, these hoes ain't loyal. But so wherever the money is at. And when they talk about lobbyists, we know that the Clinton uh, campaign's top bundlers were lobbyists who were also employees of the uh, GEO Group and CCA. Well, there you have it, brother. We're down to like 20 minutes or so, and I guess we need to get in on our regularly scheduled segments. Um, I guess I'll start off with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad.
0: Uh, let How me do that, you, that one, Max, and you do the... Um, the um... Um, slave Rebellion profile Yes sir Which you know we might as well Eliminate the Abolitionists in profile Because those two are redundant Because they're both Profiling Abolitionists So you know if you're cool <laughs> with that We could just go with uh, Eliminate that segment And just stick with the uh, Abolitionists in rebellion that uh, The saying? rebellions. Yeah.
2: All right. I, well, sometimes the rebellions are the result of more than one person, but I, I guess we could we could do that to uh, extend time to give us a little bit more time on things.
0: Yeah. Indeed. So before um, we go to the regular segment, I do want to share this one story uh, that you have posted, and this is not anything new to us that we've reported on over the years, but it just shows that the number hasn't changed or their practices haven't changed and that's the article here it is right here I may not be able to read it on um, the Washington Post but again police arrest more people for cannabis use than for all violent crimes combined and no I can't read the Washington Post article because I've reached my limit for reading articles (coughs) on their platform and I'm certainly not going to pay them uh, any money Uh, Speaking of Hillary Clinton uh, uh, campaign staffers, you know, they hired John Podesta to write over there at the Washington Post. So, but yeah, uh, it it says on any given day in the United States, at least 137,000 people sit behind bars on simple drug possession charges. According to a report released by the American Civil Liberties Union and Human Rights Watch nearly two-thirds of them are in local jail. So they ain't not spending most of their time trying to catch rapists, bank robbers, and, and other people guilty of violent crimes or suspected of violent crimes. No, they're going for the low-hanging fruit. Let's just go ahead and snatch mm-hmm. up these people on simple drug possession. So there you go.
2: You're right, Scotty, and the title says it all. Police arrest more people for marijuana use than for all violent crimes combined. And then you wonder why these prisons and jails are filled to overflowing. Indeed. Well, our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today is uh, from the MLive.com, Detroit, and it says, The Wayne County Prosecutor's Office has agreed to dismiss all charges against a 61-year-old Detroit man who's been locked up for 42 years based on potentially faulty hair analysis evidence. The Western Michigan University Cooley Law School Innocence Project was able to successfully argue that LaDora Watkins deserves a new trial because hair comparison evidence used against Watkins does not meet today's scientific and legal standards. The WMU Cooley Innocence Project said in a statement Thursday, Watkins was released today after serving 42 years for a robbery and murder he did not commit and is the longest serving inmate to be exonerated in Michigan. The WMU Cooley Innocence Project says, based on the National Registry of Exonerations, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office hasn't proclaimed Watkins' innocence. A spokeswoman and assistant prosecutor, Maria Miller, issued this statement. After investigating the case, the prosecution agreed with the defense that the trial testimony regarding hair analysis given in 1976 was flawed evidence under the 2016 revised FBI standards for hair comparison finding that there is insufficient evidence for a re, that there is insufficient evidence for a retrial today the Wayne County Prosecutor's office dismissed the case against Ladora Watkins and we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to freedom brother Ladora Watkins and god bless in your future endeavors 42 damn years you know we've talked about this before and shared articles about these hair analysis that the FBI has uh, admitted was wrong in 95% of the cases that they were used in 95% alright well Scotty did you say you wanted me to do the uh, rebellion or yeah, did you I want to do the rebellion
0: Say again? I can't I'll go hear ahead and do the rebellion.
2: Okay, no no doubt. All right, well, what well, Scotty will be handling are, uh, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion. And today we will be remembering the Amistad Slave Rebellion of 1839.
0: In January 1839, 53 African natives were kidnapped from Eastern Africa and sold into the Spanish slave trade. They were then placed aboard a Spanish slave ship Bound for Havana, Cuba. Once in Havana, the Africans were classified as native Cuban slaves and purchased at auction by two Spaniards, Don Jose Ruiz and Don Pedro Montes. The two planned to move the slaves to another part of Cuba. The, I'm not calling them slaves, the victims were shackled and lo- loaded aboard the cargo school or Amistad, Spanish for friendship for the brief coastal voyage. However, three days into the journey, a 25-year-old victim of slavery named Singbay Pei or Q, to his Spanish captors broke out of his shackles and released the other Africans. The victims of slavery then revolted killing most of the crew of the Amistad, including her cooking captain. The Africans then forced Montez and Ruiz to return the ship to Africa. During the day, the ship sailed due east using the sun to navigate. However, at night, Montez and Ruiz would change course, attempting to return to Cuba. The zigzag journey continued for 63 days. The ship finally grounded near montauk point long island in new york state the united states federal government seized the ship and its african occupants who under u.s law were property and therefore cargo of the ship on august the ninth, 1839 the amistad was towed into london connecticut The government charged the victims of slavery with piracy and murder and classified them as salvaged property. The 53 Africans were sent to prison pending hearing of their case before the U.S. Circuit Court in Hartford, Connecticut. The stage was set for an important, controversial, and highly politicized case. Local abolitionist groups rallied around the Africans' cause, organizing a legal defense hiring a translator for the Africans and providing material support. Meanwhile, the Spanish government pressured the U S president, Martin Van Buren to return the victims of slavery to Spain without trial. Uh let me see. Let me see. Uh, the first Amistad case after 60 days at sea. No, that's just repeating it. Uh, yeah, Max, it's just too much to read here, but... Okay, I, I think you grabbed the long
2: version rather than the short one we had up there. But it's, it's all good, brother. Uh, we are recognizing tonight.
0: Well, Max, let me read this part. Let me read this part. The district court rules for the Africans. The district court judge ruled that the victims of slavery were free men and ordered them released from prison. He also ordered that the United States government transport them back to Africa. He then ordered that the salvage claims of of Getney and me be taken from the remaining cargo of the Amistad and rejected all other salvage claims. The U.S. attorney appealed the court's decision demanding that the United States be free to return the victims of slavery to Spain. Under its treaty obligations, the circuit court, the next highest court, affirmed the district court's decision and rejected the United States argument. The United States then appealed the decision to the Supreme Court. The United States argued that its treaty with Spain required it to return ships and property seized by U.S. government vessels to their Spanish owners. The Supreme Court called the case peculiar and embarrassing. It ruled for the Africans, accepting the argument that they were never citizens of Spain and were illegally taken from Africa where they were free men under the law. The Supreme Court accepted that the United States had obligations to Spain under the treaty, but said that treaty never could have been intended to take away the equal rights of Africans. The Supreme Court also rejected a fairly novel argument by the government. The U.S. argument argued that the Africans should not be freed because, in commanding a slave ship and piloting, piloting it into the United States, the Africans violated the laws of the United States forbidding slave trade. The Supreme Court stated that the slaves could not possibly. Intend to import themselves into the United States as slaves or for the sale as slaves. Once the Supreme Court finally affirmed the freedom of the victims, they sailed back to Africa on the ship, gentlemen. Now, just I want to add to this is that um, 13th Amendment was, was it, it was not in effect at the time. So, I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, uh, they weren't even claiming they abolished slavery until 1865. So, but I think what it, they're talking about is they the outlawed the, slave trade. the international trade, you know, of, of going to Africa and the transatlantic, what's known as the transatlantic slave trade, they outlawed that. And, but right. they, you know, most of the people who were enslaved on this continent. Um, we're not born in Africa, but we're bred in America, and I said "bred" for a reason because they were bred. They were bred like cattle. This wasn't happy people entering into a relationship, getting married, and having children. No these these human beings were bred like cattle to make more uh, victims of slavery and the vast majority of people affected by slavery here in the United States were born right here on this continent.
2: Right. And not only were they bred, they were crossbred sometimes for no other reason than to simply provide a night's entertainment for somebody who wanted exotic, an exotic woman who was part French and part black or part Irish and part black
0: living in whorehouses in. Places like New Orleans. Well, new abolitionist radio salutes the, the victims of slavery are uh, connected to the Supreme Court case concerning the Amistad. Salute, hey Scotty.
2: There's one last thing I want to uh, mention before we get into our final comments. Sure, and that is, uh, as you know, I have been observing the Convention of States as it grows momentum and gains more and more states uh, on their uh, side who are moving to uh, go into a constitutional convention where they'll be able to change certain amendments or add more amendments. Well, just recently, as of today in the news, North Carolina is the next state considering being a uh, part of the Convention of States. I uh, put that up on New Abolitionist Radio so you can look further into it. And maybe you know some legislators in North Carolina that will be willing to represent us in such an endeavor. I uh, seriously that
0: doubt is. that, Max. I seriously doubt that. We got a bunch of redneck racists uh, in in most. And again, I'm not a partisan person, but these Republicans at the state legislature are off the chain. So no, I do not see any of them uh, that will be on common ground with us. Um, You know, I, it, it won't hurt for me to to reach out and mention it to the um the senator and the state representative over this particular district I live in. But I, I'm telling you, Max, these these people are off the chain here, man. Well, they have the backing of Senator
2: Norman Sanderson out of North Carolina. And what you just mentioned is my biggest concern that this movement to rewrite the Constitution is being led and populated by racist Tea Party members, Republican parties, hardcore racists and white supremacists. There are no minority faces in representation at all in any of this. So that is a huge problem that could lead to terrible consequences for us as a nation. But on the other hand, it is a, a great opportunity if we can finally get involved in this to become a part of uh, a convention of states in order to uh, to push our agenda of removing the Exception Clause from the 13th Amendment and finally ending slavery. It's certainly worth monitoring for those who are interested in uh, being a part of real change. Well, that's all I wanted to mention. Scotty, we're coming up on the last few minutes of our program. Was there uh, anything in particular that you want to to cover or any final
0: comments that you want to add? Yeah, I'm gonna keep it short. We only got a few minutes left. Um in slavery. That's that's it. In slavery. Slavery was never abolished. The thirteenth amendment says it plain in plain English. Read it if you doubt what I say. You know, I had somebody leave a comment on one of my YouTube videos about Colin Kaepernick and and you know, that was when he tweeted out the picture of the slave catcher's badge. In his reaction to them letting the killer of Philando Castillo go, that slave catcher. And so this person made a comment saying, At no point during our lifetime has anybody ever been enslaved. And I'm like, okay, you can argue with me all day long if you so choose. But you can't argue with that 13th Amendment. That's the supreme law of the land. So it ain't that Scotty's telling you that slavery was never abolished. It is the Constitution that's telling you slavery was never abolished. And so some people want to feign ignorance because guess what? They don't want to abolish slavery. So if you want to abolish slavery, we hope, that you become a part of this movement and we hope that you will meet up with other abolitionists in Washington, D.C. on August the 19th across the street from the White House from noon to 5 o'clock p.m. in Lafayette Park. Hope to see you there.
2: Same sentiments for me, Scotty. Uh, For those that are not really aware of the uh, monumental uh, weight of what's about to occur we are about to have the largest gathering of slavery abolitionists ever recorded in the history of the United States. That gives you a clue about how serious this is. Well, here's my final comments. Some call our vision of abolitionism, uh, abolition unreasonable, unrealistic. But from our perspective, you're the people being unreal, unreasonable and unrealistic. This is a fact. You can't legislate or regulate hate. There is no law you can write that will end the fallacy known as white supremacy. No municipal codes that will end racism. You are talking about what's in somebody's heart. It's about as realistic as thinking you can legislate love. Fact. You can legislate an end to legalized slavery. That is, as long as another exception clause isn't slid in by slavery supporters. You can take out the clause from the 13th Amendment ban for-profit prison industries from the U.S., divest as a nation from their stocks, remove and repeal widespread oppressive laws and codes, and free innocent people from bondage and restore communities to health. You can retrain people for new industries and services that don't hinge upon how many people are locked in cages or walk in shackles on how many people and communities have been reduced to abject poverty. White supremacy is an idea. Slavery is a constitutional codified fact of our existence The former can't exist without the latter So you tell me which one of us is being unreasonable And I want you to remember this above all other things Abolition is a reason for a revolution So we can finally know some peace
1: Peace Rise up, rise up, rise up Lift your eyes up. if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the sea spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep. Deep in perdition. If our leaders are globally despised and always seem to rise through attrition or blatant nepotism. If women and children have to live in impossible conditions, if you have to die due to someone else's damn decisions, rise up when innocent citizens perish for all our sins' sake. If the future seems bleak and your souls at stake, rise up when it appears that any hope left may already be lost. If the price is your soul or your daughter's life, and you refuse to pay the cost. If you ever had to ask God why, and the thunder rolled, if you just once had to wonder, have we sold our souls? Rise up for the life of an unborn child. When the homeless are reviled and the masses are beguiled, rise up. When our doctrines dictate that we all deal in debt, when we stop giving more and we start caring less. If the best we can do has already been done, if the battle isn't won and the fighting must be gone if you don't, if you see, don't see none and no we, we really, need, really one. need one rise up rise up